This Week in Startups, the Power of Accelerators series is brought to you by Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code ANGEL10. And LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash power and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. Hope everybody is taking care of themselves during the coronavirus. Thank you to all the frontline workers, delivery people. Uh, Thank you for your service, doctors, nurses, janitors, uh, EMTs, everybody on the front line, uh, we really appreciate your service. And we are now dealing with some of the second order uh, business issues. People's lives obviously come first and livelihood second in most people's estimations. So we're going to keep talking about business and we're going to keep talking about startups. Startups are, uh, in a lot of ways, the driver of our economy. Startups most often fail. Uh, and the founders learn a lot of lessons and then they get back to work and take those lessons to other companies or they start another one. And once in a while, those tiny little companies get really big and change the world. You know the names, Apple, Facebook, Google, Uber, Robinhood, a lot of great companies out there all started and backed by venture capital, angel investors, seed funds, and of course, accelerators, formerly known as incubators. And today on the program, uh, we have the CEO of the Mass Challenge, which I spoke at years ago uh, when it was a conference. And it's a bit of a, a hybrid here. It's a conference and it's a uh, accelerator. Uh, does a lot of different things. And we're going to find out all about it. The CEO and former COO uh, is Siobhan DeLay. Siobhan, are you there? I am. Hi. All right. And you can hear me okay? Five by five? Yes, yes. Awesome. Uh, Technology is working. And I'm assuming everybody is safe and sound. We're taping this in April, the, the thick of the coronavirus quarantine. How's everybody doing at home? Great. I am in this house with a husband, two teenagers, and a dog. And hopefully you'll only hear me during this time. But you I know, can't I, guarantee it. I was in a podcast and the, the twins, uh, I'm at home with a dog, three girls, uh, all under the age of 10, a 10-year-old and two identical twins who are four. So I'm in the thick of it too. Um, really is fascinating to be home for... 30 or 40 days straight, whatever it is now. It's a very weird feeling, isn't it? It feels like infinity, but yeah, I guess it has only been a little uh, around a month. And I am right now have a 16 and 18 year old who have committed not to be on the internet while I'm doing this to so we don't cause any broadband issues. Wow. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll then get right to it. Tell us, um, what is the mass challenge? How does it work? And how does it relate to what we'll call the traditional or perhaps even standard accelerator model today, 6 7% for 100, 125, 150K. Yeah, well, we're very different from your standard accelerator. Uh, we are more than an accelerator. We're a global network of programs that support startups. Uh, we're about 10 years old and we're nonprofit. So uh, we focus on the startup, uh, helping them to launch and grow their businesses, We're mainly focused on early stage startups, but we also have some programs for later stage. 
And uh, do you invest in the companies or I see there are prizes? I, I was a little confused and was trying to parse it. I too, when I actually started Launch Festival back in the day, would do a 25K, 50K, 100K prize at our events. It was riddled with issues like giving prizes. Are they taxable or whatever? So we we wound up netting it all out to uh, the winner will get a $50,000 investment prize pending due diligence. And if the first person doesn't pass due diligence, you go to the second or third. So it wouldn't come across as a taxable prize. Uh, and then I eventually started, <laughs> just went with the standard model um, for our accelerator. So tell us, how does that work? I see on the website, uh, there's millions of dollars in prizes. And it's a little bit confusing for me, sure. to be honest. How, how would I tell one of my founders uh, how to apply and what to expect? Sure, sure. So we're nonprofit. So uh, really mission driven, focused solely on the startups and uh, on developing innovation ecosystems. So what's different about us, we don't take equity at all. We uh, work across industry uh, from anywhere. We accept uh, startups from anywhere in the world. So our funding, no funding comes from the startups. So um, we're one of the largest uh, accelerators in the world. So we have a huge uh, network of experts, resources, and partners to help our startups uh, grow their business. And it's a competition framework. So we accept fewer than 10% of the people that apply. Uh, it's based on judging and Mass Challenge doesn't decide who gets into our program. Our community of experts do. So our volunteer experts judge the applications and then the startups choose get them into our cohort and then our cash prizes are also uh chosen by volunteer judges great so uh you have hundreds of people apply and you take a dozen dozens or what's the what's the ballpark how many times a year do you run cohorts yeah we have uh uh, nine programs across seven locations. So our early stage programs, which are most of our programs of those, of those nine programs, seven are early stage and we do that at scale. So for example, Boston this year will get around a thousand applications and we'll have a hundred startups. It's our biggest cohort, hundred startups in our cohort this year. Someplace like Israel, we accept 54. 50 to 60 a year. And was Mass Challenge Massachusetts Challenge? Was that the original concept here? It started there and it's yeah. evolved into massive challenge. So again, what we're, we're about the problem, uh, the problems the startups are solving. So it turned into massive challenge, but we did start and our headquarters are in Massachusetts. So uh, when you have those uh, 100 people join the cohort, say in Massachusetts, what do they do? Do they do they all uh, come to a weekly session pre-corona pandemic? Is it an in-person sure. thing? Is it a permanent space where you work out of it for? And then what's the duration of it? How does it work? Sure. So our early stage program is uh, four months. It's similar to other accelerators in that we provide co-working space, but that has been less valuable over the past 10 years. As you can imagine, in 2010, the co-working space was one of the biggest benefits. Um, it's still very valuable for some of those companies, less valuable for others. Our access to our mentors and experts, when you think about uh, our global network of over a thousand experts, there might be entrepreneurs, 
that get attached to your, to your startup and help you through your specific challenges at the time. Or you may have a specialist that you need at a particular point in time. You may join our global office hours and have access to them. Or you may have a one-off question for one of the experts. So the mentorship and experts is a big part of it. We run curriculum uh, that are is focused on what our specific cohort needs. We're running everything virtual this year, as you can imagine. So people connect into what they need. We see a big opportunity running our global programs virtually because we can get our strongest speakers or strongest um Experts so does it occur like uh, as a weekly everyone. session, like YC has like a weekly day or we do Thursdays where everybody gets together? Is there a day that everybody gets together and presents uh, it, or it depends it on our virtual programs, or? right? So this year it will be all virtual. Right. It depends on our programs. There's a different cadence. So in Boston, Boston and Rhode Island, they do a lot together. They're within driving distance to each other. So uh, every other week we'll have some in-person time, but the cadence is different based on where we are in the world. Israel has a different cadence from Mexico than Switzerland. Okay. And uh, when we get back from this quick break, I want to understand how does a million dollars in prize money get split amongst the hundred companies when we get back on This Week in Startup. I want to take a moment and tell you about the importance of insurance for your startup. And I am an expert at this because I've been doing it for 30 years. I had a magazine, I had a search engine, I had a blogging company. I have been sent legal letters every year. Anybody who's successful in business is going to need insurance because they're going to have things come up. Let me just go through the top four types of insurance with you. Cyber insurance. Imagine you get hacked, your entire customer role, maybe their credit cards, if you didn't hash them properly. Uh, Maybe it's an inside job and really important stuff gets leaked. You need to have cyber insurance to cover you. There's D&O insurance. That's directors and uh, officers. That's like your top employees, officers. And if you do something stupid, you're going to get sued and you want to make sure that your officers, the top employees of the company, and your directors, people who are on the board, have insurance and they're covered. In fact, people, you can't get great um, directors and you can't get great officers for your company if you don't have this. E and O insurance stands for errors and omissions. Really important to have, especially in editorial and other um, uh, services. And any big customer you have using your product is going to want you to have E and O if you're going to close a deal with them. And then finally, this EPL, Employment Practices Liability, that covers harassment and wrongful termination. And you see these things come up all the time. And listen, you might be the greatest boss in the world, but if somebody else feels like they've been wrong, they're going to sue you. And there's plenty of attorneys out there who want to sue you, especially if you're a venture-backed company. And you might have somebody in your organization. It may not be you. It might be somebody else in your organization does something really stupid and harasses somebody, and then you're on the hook for it. So you want to get that EPL. You want to get that E&O. You want to get the D&O. And you want to get that cyber insurance. And in brokers technology, it's going to get it for you, and it's going to save you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower, and you're going to get better coverage. You go sign up and get a quote, and you purchase within just, wait for it, 10 minutes. So what's your excuse now? Here's the thing. You don't have to call a traditional broker insurance company and deal with large, slow incumbents and sign up taking days, if not weeks, and a process that's just simply not transparent with opaque pricing. They make it quick, they make it easy, and they make it better. To instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups, go to imbroker.com slash twist imbroker.com slash twist that's em broker b-r-o-k-e-r dot com slash twist and get an extra 10 percent off by using the offer code angel 10 all right siobhan delay is with us she is the ceo of the mass 
challenge. If you heard about that and are a little confused and think it's an event, it was an event. At some point, I spoke at it, I remember, uh, when I was in uh, Boston at some point. Maybe it was even further. It felt like it was earlier than 2016. Did it exist as a conference before that? Yeah, so we started in we started in 2009, and what you spoke ah. at was our finale event uh, when Got we uh, when we gave out the awards at the end of our Boston program. Got it. Uh, okay, so when you go to the website, it says, "Hey, there's a million dollars in prizes." I'm curious. That's got to be like a very weird thing to award, having been in giving out those prizes before. At a certain point, we had a judging committee, and it just became super uh, conflicted and convoluted in our case. <laughs> like, how do you do, do it? And I just said, listen, whoever is giving the prize money can just decide for themselves what they think the best investment is. In my case, it was me. So I would just decide. And, but I would let people vote on their favorite startups, obviously, outside of that at the launch festival back in the day. Um, is that $1 million from one person and given by a committee? Is it 10 100K prizes? What is it? Yeah, so uh, the million dollars is just attached to our Boston program. We actually give two million out around the world across programs. But let me explain it in the context of our uh, Boston program. There are four rounds of judging. The first two are to just to get accepted into the program through applications and then in person. Then there are two rounds of judging while you're in the program. About halfway through, you find out if you're one of the the winners meaning the, the winners of the program. And then that final judging session is focused on allocating the cash. And we have a million dollars and those final judges can allocate it however they want. So they could give, they never do, but they could give a million to one startup. But what they do is usually look at the top startups and uh, split it out. Usually the 100K uh, down to the smallest is usually about 50K. So of a hundred companies graduating, uh, the hundred companies graduating, how much, how many of them would actually get to the prize, get in the money as it is in the poker world would, would be in the money. <laughs> yeah. Get in the money. It's usually about, uh, 10 to 15, get some piece of that money. And that's a prize. So they got to pay tax on that, right? Or is it a gift? How do you, is it a grant? Cause it's a nonprofit. It, it, how do you, how do you handle that? I'm curious. Yeah. We give them, we give them, uh, uh, non-dilutive grant. Got so it. usually they have to do its unearned income. Got it. Does that, so that means they have to pay tax on it, I guess, in some level. They do, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so- If they're a for-profit, yeah. If they're a for-profit, yeah. Um, and how how do you pick which 10 to 15 are the winners? These are very early stage startups. From what I understand, you're accepting even pre-launch, pre-customer, pre-revenue, correct? Definitely. Yeah. What percentage are pre-launch when they come to get accepted to the program, would you say? When they get accepted to the program, I'd say about half, probably a third might be pre-revenue. They usually have often have some sort of revenue. It might not be their final product, but they they are uh, funding part of their development. Got it. And so how do you pick who wins or how does the judging committee pick who wins? Because there's and there's another thing I came across when we tried to do this, which made it mind boggling for me. I'm curious how you solved it, which is, well, you might have somebody who's been at it for five years and they're just growing 10 percent a year, year over year. And they got to, you know, I don't know, five hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue by year five. But then you got somebody who's in year one, but their product is just all of a sudden making ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars in the first three months. Now, it's still a fraction in total revenue for the year. 
but man, their slope is they're growing 100% or 50 to 100%, 75% in that example, month over month on average. Well, this could be a rocket ship. How does one judge that? And then pick yeah, the prize and then how do the people feel about it? Because I know when I did this, I had so many bad feelings of people coming up to me afterwards. Why did you pick this one? Why did you pick that one? We're better than them. And they would, you know, you know how entrepreneurs are. They get a big list of why you got it wrong when you, when you annoyed somebody and they just keep coming back at you. How do you deal with that? How do you explain it? Well, there are, there are a few things yeah. are it's, it's final. It's done. It's final. We don't come back to the decision and it's a group of people. Uh, it, it are uh, like, uh, the founder and CEO of a major pharmaceutical company. Um, these are people sort of beyond reproach yeah. and it's a group of them and they decide and it is uh, confidential mm-hmm. what their discussions were. They focus on, so we have a really standard, um, you know, this is your input. This is your presentation. There's Q and A and your cutoff and the decision is made on that. The spirited conversations that I am usually part of and focus on what is the potential impact of this company and impacts defined in different ways. When you're talking about, we're not, we're not looking at their equity. We're looking at their impact. So it could be financial impact. It could be social impact. It could be, um, environmental impact. What is their impact? And, and, and do you how, get a bit of that uh, Sundance effect then? Like where, you know, at the Sundance Film Festival, they would kind of, the the filmmakers would make a joke, like the more horrific or socially, uh, you know, uh, we're all positive it was, you know, the, the more heartbreaking, the greater the chance it was going to win. And if you just did a comedy or you did a horror flick or you did a sci-fi flick, maybe you didn't have any chance. But if you did some tragic, yeah. socially relevant thing, you were going to win. And so it just all steered that direction. And the whole, then they would call it like the Sundance Film Festival, the Sadness Film Festival, because every director yeah. wanted to win. So they just increasingly made the films more dramatic and more tragic, uh, which is something they had to fight against in terms of the acceptance committee. Since I knew some of the people who were involved in it, who were directors, they would explain to me like this kind of gaming of the system. So do, do you find that? If somebody is just a cutthroat capitalist who has a product that just makes a ton of money, has an incredible margin, they're going to lose to something that is just super world positive. And how do you balance that decision-making process? That is a really insightful question. That comes up in the earlier judging stages. By the time they get to final, uh, those the, our final judges are astute enough to say, yeah, that's a huge, like, tear-jerking, <laughs> tear-jerking Save the puppies. Um, mission. Right, right, right. We're capitalists. Right. <laughs> we need, so impact, they are smart enough to know that impact consulting has to actually work. So impact sort of impact investors, uh, they know that the solution actually has to solve the problem. And this has to be long-term viable. This isn't, we're going to save three puppies. If we saved all the puppies in the world, now that's big impact. And they could do yes. that in a sustainable way for a really long time. Now that is something that's sustainable. It's not a one-shot deal. It's not a sad problem that everyone wants to solve. It's a, it's a, problem that is going to be solved and can be sustainably solved. How do you become sustainable then? And let's let's put the spotlight on you as a nonprofit. How do you become sustainable? Because you're giving away this million dollars in prize money, which seems to me crazy. Why not make it an investment from your nonprofit and make it evergreen and use the profits if there are any in 10 years to just make the program bigger? I don't understand. Yeah, well, that's a great model. And there are a lot of accelerators based on that model. And 
uh, all for it. Uh, we decided to do something different and we think it's a competitive advantage because we get public private uh, partnerships that other, we get people to work together that never would work together. I was on the phone with 32 other accelerators last week because we wanted to figure out how to make our business sustainable. So th we're there for entrepreneurs because we are part of the solution for the economic problem at the beginning uh, for economic recovery. At the beginning of this, this, um, podcast, you talked about the big guys. Well, I also want to talk about all of the people who create jobs. So we have accelerated over 2000 startups over these 10 years, and they have created over 157,000 jobs around the world. So those aren't small jobs. So that is high paying jobs. Part of it. Yeah. High paying jobs that have massive trickle, jobs. triple down effects. I know people get triggered by trickle down for obvious reasons and they're not wrong, but it is true. If you know, you have somebody who's a high wage earner, they're going to spend a lot more money because they have a lot more money. It's just basic math. They're going to be pouring more money into an economy. And these are very high paying jobs that then tend to create other jobs uh, in the world or other investing in the world. Uh, when we get back from this quick break, I want to know who are the last three or four winners and how do you track if you're doing it right? Because you don't have returns and IRR and you know multiple on cash invested as your benchmarks and as your you know uh, key metrics. What are your key metrics at the Mass Challenge when we get back on this week in startups? Now more than ever, we need people with the right skills to support our communities, especially the frontline workers who provide resources and care for those most in need. To help, LinkedIn is offering free job posts for healthcare and essential service organizations that need to quickly fill critical roles with the people who help us all. How amazing is that? If you're hiring for one of these organizations, LinkedIn's active community of over 679 million members, unbelievable how big it's gotten, can help you find the right people for the frontline fast. LinkedIn jobs screens candidates for the skills and experience you're looking for, and it puts your job post in front of qualified people who meet your requirements. So you can find the right person and you can fill critical roles quickly and properly with a talented person. Here's an example. Takeoffs.io is one of the companies we invested in, and they build an AI-enabled building materials marketplace. It's a really cool product. And last year, their CEO, Chris, was trying to hire an AI, artificial intelligence engineer lead, which is really difficult. There's a lot of competition for these, and it's a very unique skill set. Well, he used LinkedIn Jobs to find a perfect candidate after hearing about it here on This Week in Startups. And he got a candidate with a PhD in computer vision, and that employee has been with them for over a year, and he has rolled out several major projects. So here is your CTA, the old call to action. When it's time to hire and find the right person, LinkedIn is there to help. Plus, if you need to hire for healthcare or essential services, you can post your job for free. That's awesome, LinkedIn. Go to linkedin.com slash power for $50 off your first job post. That's right, linkedin.com slash power, because this is the Power of Accelerator series. Again, linkedin.com slash power. Terms and conditions, of course, apply because they're giving you 50 bucks. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, it's our Power of Accelerator series, a special 10-part series where we're looking at all the different accelerators out there. They come in different flavors. Uh, there are the traditional ones uh, where you just put in 100K, 150K for 6 7%. Uh, there are ones where uh, they're virtual and... There are others that are contest-based, like the Mass Challenge. Uh, there are global ones, there are local ones, and everything in between. Today on the program, we have the CEO of the Mass Challenge, uh, Siobhan DeLay, and she was just telling us about 
uh, 2,000 startups graduating the program in 10 years, 150,000 plus jobs created. And I would like to know, how do you know as the CEO, and I guess you have a board and you have funding, I guess, from corporate sponsors or the funders of this? Yeah, about uh, 80 to 90% of our funding comes from corporate funders. The rest come from governments, individual, high net worth individuals or foundations. Uh, uh, governments, that makes total sense. They want to do economic development. And so how many full-time people work at the Mass Challenge organization? We're a lean team with 100 globally. 100 is not lean. That's a big, it's like a lot of people. Uh, wow. Uh, so maybe yeah. five, 10 people per program, I guess. Something in that range? Yeah, yeah. It, dep- it depends on the size of the program. But yeah, globally, we have about 100 people. That's uh, nine programs. Amazing. Um, how do you know if you're hitting the mark in terms of picking the right companies to give the prizes to? And do you track that? How successful was the company post uh, going through the program? Um, yeah. Yeah. So we have to track uh, what, uh, as a 501c3 or nonprofit in other places around the world, we have to track what our metrics are. So we measure number of startups, we accelerate the funding those startups receive, uh, the revenue they generate, and the jobs they create. So we track those, we actually reach out to our startups every six months and track those over time. So over the 10 years, uh, we've accelerated uh, 2,458 startups. Uh, those startups have received over $6.2 billion in funding. They have earned over $3 billion in revenue, and they've created over 157,000 jobs. How do you get the, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are your benefactors, they must have an agenda or a reason to do this. So for the corporates, I'm curious, uh, and for the governments, what are their, what are their commitment levels? And then how do they judge if you're doing the job? And because you have to get them to re-up every, I don't know if they do a two-year deal or a four-year deal. What, what, what metrics do you have to show them to get them to show up with another check? Yeah, well, uh, governments, it's about uh, job creation, talent retention, commitments to innovation in their area. So in Massachusetts, they're really committed to um, uh, life sciences creation. They're committed to to very focused on beyond just general economic development, uh, building the fintech ecosystem in Massachusetts. They're really interested in advanced manufacturing. So robotics is very interesting to them. So, so they have picked some sectors that they believe are important for the Massachusetts area to have robotics and fintech among them. And they're in a dogfight with other areas for fintech, like the Bay Area or New York. Um, and so yeah. now you say, hey, we're going to give a, we're going to run prices here that could either have those companies be based there in the future, or at least inspire some people who are local to do it. Is that the concept? Yeah, and Massachusetts is really good. They've identified fintech uh, recently and want to commit to it. So they have a public-private partnership that we're part of. Look at what are the different, how can policy be more attractive to financial technology companies? We started a slightly later stage fintech program a couple of years ago, focused on the challenges that corporations have here. And we uh, invite different financial technology companies to help those corporations like AARP, uh, Mass Mutual, Putnam Investments, Fidelity, how can they help solve those uh, business challenges they have? There is a tried and true um, 
feeling about corporates involved in startups here in the Valley, which is don't let the fox into the hen house. Uh, be careful letting some big corporate into an accelerator or to talk to founders because they might steal their ideas and they might be using it for intelligence. How do you manage that if you've got some big fintech companies there or some big biotech companies and they're inspiring people, putting up the money, seeing all the applications, meeting all the companies as mentors? How do you know that they're not going to, as a founder, use it as an educational opportunity and develop competitive products against you? Yeah. So at the, uh, be being vigilant at the first sniff of that, I break up with that partner. So we are focused on startup benefit. It's do absolutely no harm. But most corporate partners, they see the, the, the innovation that comes from that. So they're looking for partnerships in, in our challenge based programs. They're, they're design advisors. So for the startup, they can design their product around a specific, uh, a specific need and get a paying customer. And of course, that large corporation is going to maybe turn into investment, maybe acquire or be a really great customer of them. Um, uh, large corporations understand that uh, startups move faster. They're doers, they're innovators. They move faster than a large company can. So some large traditional companies, even if they got the idea, they can't move quickly enough to steal it. They know that it's smarter to partner with them. And those are the companies we work with. Yeah, that seems to be almost universally the case is that the big companies just can't even move fast enough to steal the idea if they wanted to. Uh, And the smart ones know that if if they are. It's kind of why they're doing it, right? It's like they know they can't innovate internally. So they look at this as an external innovation opportunity to maybe, if anything, just get an early warning signal to invest in the company or maybe to buy it. Who are the top two or three companies to come out of the last two or three years or historically, who are the top companies? Uh, come out of it. Let's start it from that way so we can look at the big picture. Yeah. In terms of yeah. people who actually went through the accelerator, not just appeared at the event, but went through the, pro- the pro- proper accelerator program. Who are the winners? Sure. Yeah. So some of the big ones from um, some of our early days are Flywire. It's a financial technology company, links banks to universities and uh, complex payments. So they're valued over at a billion. So they're unicorn status. Um, they are... Uh, Raised Series E in uh, February of last year at 120 million, valued over at of uh, a billion. Mass, uh, Mike Massaro, who's the CEO, is actually on our board of advisors for our Boston program. They're really connected to us. Ginkgo Bioworks is when, when Flywire went through. What was their what stage were they at? And that was that was founded back in 2010. So just when you're starting, they went through in our 2010. So wow. they were really early. They were called Peer Transfer at the time. Huh. Wow. Yeah, so they were focused exclusively on universities then, but now they do complex payments for business, large institutions. Okay, and Ginkgo Bioworks, that's a major one. Did they go through the program as well? Yeah. Yeah, in 2010. Yeah, so uh, so they print DNA. So they're uh, biotech, which is huge for Massachusetts anyways. Where uh, they just announced a huge commitment. So yeah, their unicorn uh, raised Series E in 2000, uh, end of 2019, but um, they announced a commitment for they switched their platform to focus mainly on COVID-19 solutions and $25 million uh, commitment in resources to help um, uh, diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccinations to scale their solutions. So they're doing amazing work then. And we're actually working really closely with them. 
and uh, Localytics, I know, went through there as well. That was a pretty successful company. They were acquired back in the day. Yeah, yeah, they went through uh, in the early days as well. And then, you know, some go on to when they're at later stage. I think Localytics is actually went to Wycom later when they were closer to exit. And that's a really good focus for when they're close to to exit, they may partner with another accelerator, work with us in the early days to start to I was about to say, since you're not taking equity, the cap tables are generally going to be super clean. You're kind of like a great place for other accelerators to look for companies. Do you yeah, see that we, phenomenon um, a lot? Yeah, we have um, we have with Techstars, if they go through, um, if they get into Mass Challenge, they skip some of their first levels of due diligence for Techstars because ah. they know that they're quality. So we have that with a lot of accelerators. Um, yeah, and actually we have a great track record. We, as I said, we check with our alumni. Almost 90% of our alumni are still in business or have been acquired. So it's huge. What? Um, makes for a great application when an application comes up and you're looking through them what is like a snap decision onto the next round when you're doing that first round what have you seen specific tactical things that make you move them on to the next round yeah so so in our context the community moves them on because the sure. judges look at that but i can tell you because i look at every application uh, yeah. before they become startups and it's it's about the size of the problem and the credibility of the solution got it right so there. the size of the problem is mm -hmm. this just for puppies or does it include kittens too if it includes <laughs> kittens yes. that's twice as much than doubles the population uh, but yeah. in all seriousness the the scale of the problem that you're trying to solve and then the credibility of the solution and when you say credibility of solution does that mean product team both yeah, it's a little bit of both, but there's, there's, uh, is there IP? Is it, is it? So you talked about it. Uh, the size of the problem, it could be this huge problem that's a tearjerker that makes us all, you know, sad dance. Yeah. Um, but the solution is, isn't there. The solution is just a pipe dream. Is there something there? Does the team, so is there something there that's viable? Is there a, t a credible team or advisors? behind it? Why Why can this team uniquely win? And is there uh, any sort of traction with the customer? So we're pre-revenue, but do you have a definite, is the technology so wonderful that maybe you don't need a customer yet? Or do you have an idea of who your target is? And is there a, you know, an addressable market? And All right. So I let's said. do a little, uh, let's do a little uh, role play here. I'm a founder and here I am. I have a, uh, Siobhan, I have a startup. It's an app. It makes people less lonely. And so here, I'm now pulling on the heartstrings. And uh, yeah, you know, 57% of the country reports feelings of isolation and loneliness on a monthly basis. So it's a huge problem. Now, how do yeah, you evaluate right me from this point forward? Yeah, how are you going to solve that? What is, is there research that shows that your solution is actually solves that? What makes you credible to this? Credible in that, do you, are you... Uh, a psychologist? Do you have? Yeah, we're a team data? of three. MIT? We're a team of three counselors who worked uh, with people who were suffering from anxiety and depression, and we just start spun it out to create this company. We're working on our weekends, so now I've increased my credibility. But you yeah, really actually want to know Not how? Really. It, what's that? Not really. I mean, <laughs> you have. You are. It sounds like you're really, uh, really care about this problem, and 
uh, might be committed to do it, but why is an app the right solution? What sort of research beyond your personal experience do you have to deliver on that? Yeah, we tried four different formats and we found that people were most responsive, not to video conferencing or email, but we found with SMS messaging and emojis, we send them a series of 10 questions and we have them pick the emoji they like best that suits their feelings. And then we ask them follow-up questions and we ask them to journal those on their own time and uh, we found that 78% of people said they would, uh, that it made them feel much less lonely. And uh, every, uh, out of every 10 users who've used the program, they have referred 14 people to it. So we actually have a, a little bit of a viral coefficient starting. Now, yeah, how does it sound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that uh, there's. Stay in be, character, uh, stay in character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so. Uh, the feedback that I give is that's really interesting. There needs to be more. And what would end up happening is they may be okay and be credible and so many other people would be better. So that's what's great about having a competition-based right. program is but how, that- Based on what I just okay. explained, and we've had 50 people go through it um, and the last 10 paid us $300 for the program because um, uh, it was $100 a month for three months for unlimited uh, back and forth with your person. How close am I in that pitch that I just did? The three people who work in it, they got 50 people going through it, they got the app built in a 1.0. Am I halfway yeah, there? Uh, probably not. I mean, I think it's wow. interesting that people paid for it, but did they pay for it again? And did more yeah. people pay for it again? It's just like any other. So I'm it's, halfway it's... there maybe in that estimation. What else yeah, would you yeah. need to see from this example? Like, so if let's say somebody had gotten this like, because this seems to me like a decent amount of progress towards the goal. A little bit, they got some people to pay, but how much further along do I need to get? You, you, yeah. Now we're down yeah, to yeah. sustainability repeat customers, and then I might get in? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably want to see. Well, it all depends on who else is getting in. So if you have a synthetic, uh, synthetic DNA company that is credible because they've done some of this in undergrad work, I don't know if you'd get in. But uh, for this one, I'd want to see a little more traction and repeat business. So if you had some people pay for it, that's really interesting. But over time, did it, what were, what were you marking in terms of loneliness? How did that improve? And how did that improve over time? And did those people buy again? And did they get more people to buy again? I think that would be interesting. But I'd also, uh, just because three people are counselors, I want to see what else are you doing to show that your solution might have some viability? Are you looking, are you So what we've learned from this is that you guys are not that early. It's not an incubator. It really is an accelerator. Like if it was an incubator, I'd feel like if I got to the MVP stage and I got three or four people to pay for it, I would be kind of in the money for an incubator. But you guys have a higher benchmark. It's really competitive. So mm. it's sometimes it's also the technology and you don't have the business around it. So like, so a hydration sensor, you could apply that like a wearable. One of our companies, I just was talking to her not too, uh, not too long ago. She was a few years back, but when she came in, she knew that she had the technology that it was a hydration sensor that you could get through, uh, probably some sort of wearable, but all she had was that it worked. Uh, but it was, you know, in the lab, could be sports, it could be health, it could be for soldiers, lots of different applications. They knew the technology worked. That would probably get in before they had a market. You have some hard tech. So what you talked about is the solution. I don't know if it's any good. All right. Two things. They're both kind of tactical. Why are the East Coast investors so obsessed with IP? I hear it all the time. IP, IP. What's the IP? 
And then I never hear that on the West Coast. I'm an East Coast boy growing up on the East Coast. I always heard people, and even to this day, I hear all the investors out there talking about IP. I never hear it come up out here. I want to know why that is, if you have any feelings on it. Um, and then number two, I want to know if you believe in this new world we're in with pandemics, if, and you do a lot of what you do in person, but some of it virtual, I'm sure. I want to know if you think a virtual accelerator will work, and if so, under what circumstances? Because I suddenly find myself with a launch accelerator launching our first 100% virtual accelerator, and I have not met any of the seven companies we're going to give $100,000 to in person. And I don't know if this is brilliant or it's ridiculous, but why are you all so obsessed with IP? Why does this keep coming up? Is this some historical thing because you got too many lawyers in uh, Boston? Yeah, it's they're just more conservative uh, investors here. They ask every question 20 times. So Ugh. I think that, Ugh. you know, I, I, I wish we could be more middle of the road. So I do think that there is a little bit of um, uh, I have a great idea and I went to this fancy named person and got advice and someone slaps down 50 grand. I, I th- on the West Coast. I think it is a yeah, little let's go. too fast. <laughs> right, Place right, bet. right. Come on. Someone said they Roll liked the it. That guy that I know said they liked it. Here's 100K. Boom. And on the East Coast, it's way too... I asked you this five times, but I want to ask you again. Oh, um, it's too so much. Scared. So Why are they so scared? <sighs> I, I don't know. They yeah. st- I think it's still illegal to eat peanuts in church on the East Coast because of the blue laws. So I, I just a, think that there's so many. You know what I think it is? I'll tell you what I think things. it is. I think if you're historically, there haven't been some crazy outliers. So it would be like if you're playing in, I don't use the lottery as an example because there's no skill involved in playing the lottery. But let's just take a poker tournament. Like if there were only sp- you know, poker tournaments with, uh, you know, a $100,000 prize pool. And then the people in Vegas were playing with, you know, regularly million dollar prize pools. People might play a different style of poker knowing that, hey, you know, the distribution in this casino is they pay out a lot of people. So you just want to get in the money and double or triple your money. And then people out in Vegas might be like, you know what? You just want to play aggressive and you want to double your stack and triple your stack as quick as you can so you get to the final table because really majority of the money goes to the top two winners. In other words, there's a power law. And I think out here, we just experienced the power law at such an extreme example with a lot of deck corns, which let's face it, on the East Coast, you, you do have a lot of unicorns these days, but you don't often have a deck of corn. And I'd, I, in New York, never met anybody with the exception of Fred Wilson, I think, who had invested in a company worth over $10 billion. He did Twitter. But out here, I mean, I... I bump into people who are complete idiots and they're like, yeah, no, I invested in LinkedIn and Twitter. And I'm just like, but you're an idiot. And they're like, yeah, I am. But I invested in LinkedIn and Twitter. And I'm like, how did you do that? They're like, well, I was at a party and I was doing mushrooms with this kid and he he was in Twitter and he told me about it and I got in. And I'm like, what? But you're an idiot. He's like, yeah. Isn't it great? It's <laughs> like, Wow. There anyway, you didn't expect that answer, density. but there's something there between those something two. something about the density, too. Yes. Like, everyone's everywhere. So you're seeing lots of opportunities all the time. It's yeah. a little more formal on the but, East Coast, I think. All right, let's move on about, yeah, $500,000 in diligence for a 5K check. I literally had somebody who was like, I'm putting 5K into a syndicate. What level of diligence should I do? I was like, if you're doing a syndicate, I would suggest you use the product. And maybe you could find a customer or two on your own who use it or read the reviews 
and then make a decision because you're putting in 5,000. But if you were putting in 50,000, maybe you could talk to the founder a bit more. And if you're putting in 500,000, that's when you would do diligence. So I'm trying to explain that 5K, 50K, 500K um, thing. But what kind of, it's a good side uh, diversion. What kind of diligence do you do on accepting them? Because you're not putting money in, so you don't really have to do too much diligence. Are you doing like this deep level of diligence? That takes a lot of work. No, no. Yeah. I make sure that he, he, so I joke as I go through, I make sure that they're not trying to hurt puppies. Right. <laughs> they don't, no have, puppy they're, they're not doing, they're not doing harm. No explicit and, harm. And, and the rest is the, the community sorts out the judging. So we right. make sure they're not doing harm. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting, I see. I think that means you get to take more risk. Because you're not disqualifying people because you looked at the cap table and you're like, oh, this cap table's messy or you're an LLC, you need to be a C Corp or you're ESOP or you're fully, we have to go through all of these things because we're we're handing people off to VC firms and seed firms who are going to disqualify people. So I kind of feel like you're just that stage earlier, you can take a little bit more risk. Um, Totally. How do you feel about 100% virtual accelerator programs, investing in companies you've only met on Zoom? Have you done this in the past? Yeah. Um, and what should I do? Because now I'm about to do this, and I feel like this is either the most brilliant thing I've ever done, or I'm going to look incredibly stupid for giving people $100,000 having never met them in person. Yeah. Well, I don't think you have a choice first, but we do okay, a lot. Fair, fair of enough. Work. Yeah. Or you stop. You pause what you're doing. I don't want to stop What's the working. opportunity cost of that? Yeah, that's crazy. I have a friend who told me, I, who's a VC, he's like, yeah, we're just not doing any investments till the end of the year. We're just going to work on our portfolio. And I was like, oh my God, that's what? terrorizing. Well, that's terrifying. Oh my well, God. The, the people who will come out better, the people who take risks and innovate and are decisive right now, just like every company out there. So you need to embrace the opportunity and go for it. If you can't pivot into a different environment, well, yeah, you should wait until the end of the year and you're going to have mediocre opportunities. So I feel really, if you can't tell, I feel really strongly that you morph into a new reality and these companies have to be able to work well globally. I mean, virtually. And if they can't, then you'll know that you shouldn't invest in them. Um, we, we do a lot of work virtually and we, this year we'll do everything virtually. There's great opportunities. You can connect with them more frequently. You can connect mm. them to people who are also working virtually elsewhere in the world to get, to get, uh, advice and push them. So I, d- I don't think you're crazy. I think you just have to mm. look a little differently and a little, possibly a little deeper. Yeah. It's right now we've been hosting virtually and we're getting more investors from more regions, obviously, because we're not saying, hey, you have to come meet right. them on Thursday at 2 p.m. in San Francisco proper. So it does open up the aperture for us. And we are, it's really interesting. I, I find when I'm watching them on Zoom, I'm really keyed into their decks a little bit more because that's all I've got. And I'm typing notes and I don't like to type notes in front of them in person. So I have a no device rule in person because I feel like people then just start screwing around doing email. Um, And now what I'm realizing is some of the investors who are doing it, I'm like, I wonder if they're doing email or not. And I'm like, you know what? They're probably, when they're not interested in a company, feeling free to go do their email or Slack somebody. But when they are interested in the company, they're probably doing Google searches and visiting their website. Yeah. So, so maybe they're going deeper with some and not as deep with others. Substance over form, right? This mm. is the opportunity. You're looking at them and they can't 
do the song and dance. Mm. <laughs> they have to really know what they're doing. I think that the flexibility to work in a different way, they're not always going to be in front of their customers or they have to do well when they're not in person as well as and work in different ways. So I think it's an opportunity. When you look at companies, what are the red flags, looking back historically, where you knew we're accepting this company, but you had that sense or that internal or the, the committee had the debate like, yeah, I think it's going to fail. And you kind of knew it was going to fail. You accepted them. And of course, they did fail. And then you iterate on your process and say, no more of this. No more of these type of companies. No more of these type of founders. No more of companies at this stage. These are the red flags. What red flags have you identified where you're just like, oh, I'll give you some I, of mine, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to give you anything that is mind-blowing here, but I do think that um, any sort of, just like in interviews, people, if if you have that niggling feeling that uh, that was weird, it's just going to get worse. So the, the, they were, they were arrogant. They, they flush, they, uh, sort of sideline questions about research around the fundamental technology. They seemed a little weak on the uh, business side. And it all comes out. It all is clear. Later you know, down uh, the road. in fairness to Elizabeth Holmes, uh, you know, she tried her best. <laughs> Thank you. Did that one we land or no? I don't know if that joke landed, but it just literally while you were saying it, I was like, wow, that sounds exactly like Theranos. They wouldn't answer questions about the technology and they had no business that would work. It's like, but literally. boy, was she charming, right? So she uh, probably did great in person. She would never survive virtually over Zoom because they'd say- The goods wouldn't be there. You just said this. I Googled it and you're wrong. You're lying. Right. So I, oh, that's a, see, I think that's actually a profound insight is that in person, you might be it might be easier to snow people in person. And it might be people might be a little more candid and cutthroat and matter of fact over a Zoom because they can end the Zoom. They can leave when you're in physical proximity. You got that hour long. You have that, which is why I think a lot of founders are like, instead of when they pitch me. They're just like, please pick a date. And I'm like, yeah, can you answer these five questions by email first? And then we'll pick a date. I don't know if you get that. Like mm -hmm. the founders are yeah. just immediately trying to get in person because they know an in-person meeting. Wow, now they've got that charisma they can try to deploy to get you to invest. Yeah, you and I are extremely charming right now, but right. not many people have this skill. Not, not on Zoom, <laughs> not on Zoom at No, all. I mean, I'm literally starting meetings and saying, uh, insert pleasantry here. Let's get down to business. <laughs> I, it's I mean, it's one of the faster. nice things about the East Coast is that people just get right to the point. Out here, oh my lord, people are like, "Hey, yeah, what camp in Burning Man are you in?" And oh yeah, you know, just like, <laughs> oh wow, just a, yeah, it's a little bit too much um, repetitive uh, banter. What there's a big discussion right now, and anytime we have a crisis, it'll never be the same. Life is going to change forever. We're never yeah. going back. The new normal. What do you think? Post-coronavirus, assuming we beat this, and I think we're going to beat it, and I think we're going to beat it in 2020. I think we'll beat it and we'll be back uh, in the third quarter, you know, uh, and full steam in fourth quarter. That's my personal belief. Uh, people can debate it. Uh, I'm sure there are people smarter than me who will, will nail their timing better. But is, are there going to be things that you personally believe will change forever, or do you think we're going to go back to largely the same life? Well, so... Old enough to, you know, after September 11th and uh, uh, after the recession, some things did change for good. And I think that, uh, and they get a little softer over time, but 
things that I'm excited about changing because I fully believe, I don't know the timing either, but I fully believe we're going to be back in action. And while we have economic recovery to deal with, we're going to be right back as focused as we were. But some of the things that I'm excited about is that we broke through in telehealth. People have been starting companies around mm. telehealth and the system has been pushing them back because it's changed. That is going to boom. EdTech, there are tons of EdTech companies right now that are giving away their stuff for free because people just need it. It's yes. either homeschooling stuff or universities. There's going to be breakthrough in those. And I'm excited about how that will be different because we'll be able, it's going to have an implication on healthcare positively and healthcare costs positively and education. It's going to democratize some of that. So those are the things I'm excited about. I, I think, yeah, go ahead. No, I should say like, it's almost like if the, if the product was going to be delivered virtually, we now have this forcing function where you can't go see your doctor to get your prescription. You can't go see your therapist. You cannot go see your tutor. Therefore the tutor has to learn how to use these tools. And um, literally one of our, uh, one of our tutors, uh, one of our kids had a tutor and they were like, it's kind of sought after tutor kind of situation. And they were like, if you don't come, this is four weeks, five weeks ago. If you don't come, you're going to lose your spot in the waiting list. And I was like, yeah, it's a goddamn, you know, this is a health risk. We're not coming. And it was like, a, they were, this woman was a little heavy handed about it. And I was like, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden, she because we she, she does not do virtual, and then all of a sudden she's doing virtual, and I was mm -hmm. like, okay, they, they were basically saying, put your child at risk, or you lose your slot with this, um, you know, sought after tutor. And sure enough, I probably lost it right now. I probably blew it right now by talking about it on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. I can get it. Trust me, I can afford a better tutor than you if you're going to strong arm me. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll find out who taught you, and I'll hire them. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but it is true. Uh, they are being forced to embrace this, just like I'm being forced to embrace, which I didn't want to, but now here I am with a virtual company that I never wanted, and now I got to right? do this stuff. Speaking of that, you do it. Are you uh, on it every day? Are you on like with your team every day, doing Zoom all day long? All day long. Isn't it exhausting? Are you exhausted from this? I find uh -huh. Zoom exhausting. It is. It's intense. As I said, it's like we get right down to business. They're all half hour slots and there's no time for pleasantry. So it's just like you're on after and uh, your other uh, guests have said this. It's 12 to 14 hour days, six to seven <sighs> days a week. Like I work a lot anyway, but this just doesn't stop when you're it's at the, home. It's the blending too you talked about before where it's like, is it April, March, or May? Uh, is it Monday, yeah. Sunday, or Wednesday? Is it the morning or the afternoon? I can't, everything's blending. And I was just thinking about that with our accelerator. And I'm just like, why are we even doing cohorts at this point? We should just literally wake up every day. And if it's a great company, just add them. Right. And give them rolling. the money and just add them to the flow. And then if somebody raises money, just... They can leave the program and mission accomplished. And it's just every twice a week we have a class and it's just a rolling class. I'm thinking, well, I'm literally thinking about just doing a rolling never. It's like the Bob Dylan tour, the never ending tour or the rolling thunder review. <laughs> this may just turn into the rolling thunder review where it's just one giant tour. 
Well, that's one thing that we really are working on. It's how to make the connections across the cohort and so that they get to know each other versus yeah. just the one at. So mm. um, we're doing that. We're exploring new technologies. There's a ton out there and it's going to get us doing things. We have our own technology, but we're going to explore others that can just. I looked at knows, one. It's I random. wonder what you yeah. think of this one. You keep your camera on persistent. A lot of people are embracing this, like young startups I know, and I don't know how I feel about it, so I only invited like my three like folks who I thought would be most open to it on the team, but mm -hmm. it, it's a persistent video channel where you're mm -hmm. on video the whole time, but it like will just do your headshot, and then it mm -hmm. takes a photo of you every five minutes or 10 minutes, you set it, one, five, 10 yeah. or not, or you can have it doing your video, like little looping videos. So when you're at your desktop and you have two desks, two monitors, you can have one monitor with just everybody working and yeah. you see people all day. And I was like, that's pretty fucking cool. Oh, sorry. That's pretty fucking cool because now I feel like I'm not <laughs> alone. Sorry you about just that, said mom. sorry and said. I know, but I just for my mom. Sorry, twice. mom. That was hilarious. Tell, tell grandma I said hi. No, Nick. Um, <laughs> sorry, mom. No, she calls me and she's just like, I heard the podcast and you dropped an F bomb. And I don't, oh. I don't think when you're, you know, you're so smart and you're on the podcast dropping F-bombs and it, it detracts from your argument. Like, See, okay, my mother so. would throw in an F-bomb. <laughs> your mom would throw <laughs> in. Yeah. Yeah. She's from Boston or any of that yeah, area exactly. within a hundred miles. <laughs> F-bombs exactly, are being dropped. Exactly. So um, I, um, yeah. I'm not into the persistent. You're I, not into the persistent. No, no. Yeah. I, so we have teams on all the time or, you know, Slack will do it, but we are constantly on that. What do you um, think about yeah. that, Nick? I'm asking my producer right now for a second. What do you think about that persistent thing? You like it or not? I mean, I feel like working for you, I, I, I give up all my privacy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> working for me is no problem. No, I, I don't, it's been, it's, it became a discussion inside of, um, uh, the the seed slack that we're doing and with the other seed investors are using it. And I was like, that's kind of interesting like for an investment team to be on it. But I don't know. I, I, this is You're all really what like. All right, listen, or... <laughs> continued success. Everybody apply. Um, Siobhan DeLay uh, is on the Twitter, but you're going to need a minute for me to spell this. S-I-O-B-H-A-N-D-U-L-L-E-A. -L -L -E Siobhan DeLay. Delay. Such, such I did the a French. Just delay. Thing. Like a flight Just delay. delay. I mean, are we ever going to go on planes delay. again? That's the other thing I'm wondering. I haven't been on a plane in a, six weeks. It's very weird. I, uh, what happens to all the planes? What do we do with them? I landed like two days before this, this social distancing started. Um, yeah, we'll go back. It'll just take time. Just like September 11th. People didn't think they'd fly again. Yep, and that's right. We do eventually. You got to yeah. get back to it. At the, the, so I was talking to, I have a friend, you know, like everybody's got that hysterical friend uh, mm -hmm. on their message, I message thread. So I got this we hysterical friend him, yeah. and he actually predicted Trump and that it would be the end of the world. So you have to give him some credit. And he predicted Trump when he was like one of 10 Republican. So unfortunately, he has some credibility, but he has been saying that 5 million to 10 million people are going to die in America. And every time it went from like the estimates from you know, like a million to 500 to 200 to 60, and maybe it's only going to be 30 or 40. You know, he's coming up with reasons about why it's the end of the world. He's like, it's never going to be the same again. And I said, you know, what What changed after 9-11? We had two wars. Uh, one of them may have been justifiable. Maybe the, the other one certainly wasn't. And then what else changed? The TSA? Because we kind of unraveled the TSA with TSA pre and clear. And we're basically saying like, 
it's kind of not necessary for most people. So let's give you a hack. If you just want to spend 15 minutes and a hundred bucks a year, you don't have to go through this nonsense. It's not for you. And then I look at the dot-com crash and doesn't seem like aside from the companies making a lot of money now that people have lost their appetite to invest and go big. And then I look at the 2008 financial crisis and I'm, I guess hedge funds are levered up. Maybe the banks aren't. So I don't see like some major change except for those, which seem very small. There's some. I mean, yeah, I did pre 9-11. You would run to the door and say, hold it, and you'd get on. So security yeah. has opt a little, but there are definitely workarounds. I think that um I think that some of the um what what kills me around now is all the businesses that laid off within 48 hours that weren't even in affected industries right now. That means that they weren't being building sustainable businesses. So I get why people have to lay off when they're, they're uh, food and beverage, um, some of the really affected industries, but some people laid off that were in totally separate industries that they should have had some runway. Uh, larger yes. companies. And and that is where I think that people are behaving differently. They're not, I think that there was real hesitance mid, you know, 2010s not to have a better runway and we're thinking more about sustainability and being able to weather a storm. But that clearly is not happening. I've been preaching it for triggered. the last five years, telling these founders have 18 months of runway. I can't tell you how many founders said to me, well, you know, we raised the last year round so easy. We're just going to do it every six months so we can build our valuation. And I said, you know, it's not very resilient. And you're going to be like, after three months, you're going to start the fundraising process. And if anything happens, if God forbid, there's another terrorist attack or anything, uh, any kind of black swan. And they're like, what's a black swan? I'm like, you need to kind of need to read the book. Um, if there's a black swan, the markets turn off for six to 18 months. Like you don't have enough runway to do it. And if you even look at our supply chain with masks and PPE or whatever, like, or even drugs, we are not um, set up for any kind of resiliency. These mm -hmm. are these are fragile businesses. Forget about anti-fragile. These are just straight up fragile. Yeah. And even I, I get if people don't have 18 months, but this is, we're talking, you know, within, before 18 weeks, within 18 days, people were calling it. And um, that's just not responsible. Well, and, and the, the real me. sin to me is if you could have had 18 months, I've had people who were like, we got an offer for a million dollars as like, you know, to top us off on that last round. I'm like, take it. And they're like, yeah, yeah. well, that you know, I don't know. We just, we have 3 million in the bank. I'm like, yeah, but they, why don't you just raise your, you, you got the 3 million out of 15 million post. Offer those Even people who want to put a million in an $18 million cap on their note and take it. Even and they're like, we yeah, we don't need it. No. Even if we didn't know that uh, it was going to be as big as this, we knew since January that the supply chains from China were uh, uh, interrupted and that there was going to be at best a downturn or a slowing down. So people from people who didn't take funding as early as that weren't reading anything. Yeah, read the room. Well, also, you think about these governors. I never saw today Cuomo uh, at the time of the taping of this had all the governors on at once. From the Northeast Corridor, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, everybody. And it was becoming very clear to me also when you just think about the structure of how the founding fathers set up the United States, they're like, you know what? Let's make this redundant and resilient and anti-fragile. There'll be a federal government, but they'll be limited by what they can do. And then let's have the states and let's have them be capped at what they can do by their state. And you know what? This may actually, even in a crisis, wind up... Um, being beneficial because you're going to see who's a really good leader. 
like some leaders recognize this and took decisive action that other people are just lollygagging. It's a lot of lollygagging. We are lucky in Massachusetts. We have uh, Charlie Baker. New York clearly has a strong leader and we have some good ones around here. So I haven't seen that, but I can't wait to see it because it's yeah. a strong set of strong set of governors in the I, Northeast. It's literally, I think you're going to have these blocks of governors now emerge where it's going to be like the Northeast, the Southwest, Southeast, you know, the Pacific Northwest. Everybody's going to kind of break into these groups and say, here's how we're doing it. And it's going to let people realize that the federal government has very high limitations and that even in this crisis, Trump has got no ability to to pick when people open. If he wants to open for Easter yesterday, you know, we we're taping this. Uh, it, it's not his choice. Not his choice. You know, there's governors mm -hmm. who are going to make a more logical decision. Then people can pick the state they want to live in, just like they pick the country they want to live in. Uh, all right. Listen, we could talk forever. Great job today on the pod. Uh, everybody, if you want to uh, apply to the mass challenge, what's the website? MassChallenge.org. MassChallenge.org. Used to be Massachusetts. Now it's just massive, as in you're going to build a massive business. Get in there, everybody. Win one of those prizes. Get those uh, get those um, mentorship and uh, good luck with everything. Stay safe, okay? Thanks for okay. doing the pod. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Again, to the front line, delivery people, Instacart, DoorDash, Postmates, Uber Eats. Uh, I like that last one best, but just an aside. Uh to the, all the people in the hospitals, uh, janitors, cleaning staff, nurses, nurse practitioners, attendants, doctors, obviously, everybody, security guards, EMTs, we're in awe of you. We appreciate you. Thank you for taking all that risk. Uh, it really is something else to see you do that. We, we saw the firefighters run into 9-11. We've seen the police go into school shootings and all these kind of crazy things. And this is a silent killer, and you guys are putting yourself on the line with this incredibly horrific, deadly disease just inches away from you. Uh, wow. It's the same as running into a burning building as far as I'm concerned. You have our respect and our love. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.